0: Hello and welcome to the ZSL Wild Science Podcast. My name is Charlotte Coles and I'm standing in for your regular host, Dr Moni Bohm, while she roams the worlds of Australia in a camper van. But it's her loss and my gain because we've got a great group of conservation scientists lined up for this episode where we're focusing on China and exploring the role of collaboration in conservation. Collaboration can of course take many forms, as we will find out, involving scientists, governments, local communities, NGOs, the list goes on. But to help me discover more, I'm joined by Heidi Marr, who amongst other things is a PhD student here at the Zoological Society of London. Heidi, thank you for joining me. You're involved with various projects across ZSL. Tell us more about what you do. Thank you so much, Charlotte. Like you said, I'm both a PhD student here,
1: and I'm also a project coordinator for ZSL's Hainan Gibbon Project, which is a conservation project aiming to save the world's rarest ape, the Hainan Gibbon, from extinction. I'm based in the Institute of Zoology, but I also spend a substantial amount of time in China, which is the country where I'm originally from. My role is to facilitate the delivery of conservation activities on the ground in China, which ranges from communicating with various stakeholders and collaborators, from academics to government, bureaus and officials to nonprofits. And also just under a year ago, I started my own PhD research, um, which is focused on local communities and villages around protected areas on Hainan Island. And in the study system, what we're trying to address are some key questions in conservation biology, such as how effective are conservation campaigns and how do people actually perceive the extinction disappearance of wildlife and also how we can come up with solutions that also help the livelihoods of the local people who live really near protected areas and have a huge impact on conservation. Wow, it
0: sounds like you're incredibly busy, Heidi. But you mentioned that you're originally from China. Were you always keen to get involved in research and conservation efforts closer to home?
1: Yes, actually. So I have been one of the fortunate people who have grown up in different countries, um, both in the U.S. and China, and then in the last couple of years, I lived and studied in the U.K. And China to me is somewhere really exciting, where lots of change is happening every day, basically, and there's so much that we don't know. So that's one reason. And quite frankly, I'm also just quite curious, and I love to travel and explore new places, and especially looking at the relationships between people, in different places, with their environment, I think that's something quite close to my heart.
0: Absolutely. Well, we're joined by a host of different experts today, including John McKinnon, who is an honorary professor at the Durrell Institute of Conservation Ecology at the University of Kent. John's career spans an impressive 53 years, working in Africa and Asia. He is a leading figure in conservation in China, having developed the master plan to save the giant panda and is also well known to many keen birders. He is the co-author of A Field Guide to the Birds of China, which I've been told is the most influential book ever to be written about the birds of China. Thank you so much for joining us, John. What makes China such an interesting and special place in terms of the wildlife that is found there?
2: Well, China's very big. And very diverse, so it has from the highest mountain in the world down to one of the lowest in the Turpan Basin, some some sub sea level lands, from deserts to rainforests, from temperate to tropics. So it's it's very diverse, and with that, very rich in species. It's called a mega diversity country. That very large numbers of species. It's certainly the richest temperate country. Maybe Brazil and maybe Indonesia are richer, but they're tropical. China is mostly temperate. It's also the biggest human population. It's the biggest, now the biggest developing country in the world. It's the biggest trading company and the biggest outputter of carbon. So it's really the place. If you can change policy even a little bit in a positive direction in China, I think you've done more than thrashing around in my allotment.
0: (laughs) Unfortunately, many of these species that are found in China are under a threat of extinction today. You've referred to sort of the, the huge population in China. What are the key threats that are facing wildlife in this country?
2: Yes, it's it varies from group to group. I mean, among the birds, n- not much more than the global average are facing threats. Uh, mammals and some plant groups and, and reptiles and amphibians are facing probably more than the global average. But there's a very high high human population with very fast development. So land is cleared for now for everything. But China is also planting more trees than the rest of the world put together. I mean, it, it's it's also expending more money on environmental restoration than anywhere else. So they're trying very hard, but the problems are very big. Mm. And, there are, and there are some successes. You'll have heard this year... Giant panda was taken off the endangered list and put on the vulnerable list. Snow leopards taken off the endangered list onto the vulnerable list. So these these are positives. They've just announced that they will halt the land reclamation along the coast and on the big lakes. These, These are huge steps.
1: That's really interesting. And you yourself have directly been involved in conservation in China for nearly three decades. What do you think is the biggest change that's happened over this time span?
2: Well, environment's just got big it's now almost top of the agenda. You look at the twelfth five year plan and the thirteenth five year plan and environment's right up there. About thirty percent of the country will be in non development areas allowed to recover. They have noticed that climate is changing, the river patterns is changing, water becoming short, pollution has become a huge issue. It's not a democratic country, but the people's Concerns are nevertheless felt, and they're voicing their concerns. They want the government to clean up the environment.
1: Is that how you would more or less characterize the current status of conservation in China?
2: Well, China has, for instance, more than the world average of protected areas. The Aichi targets, 17% of the land area, is in nature reserves. This is a, a huge investment in land set aside for biodiversity. And the budgets that go to protecting that land and the numbers of staff involved in it are, are huge. For instance, Yahoo outside Beijing is a sort of a small wetland site. Rather, a lot of visitors from Beijing come to see it every weekend and sometimes on the weekdays. The budget for Yahoo is more than the entire budget for all of Britain's national parks put together. You'll find other reserves in China that have no budget and basically no staff. but... In total, the amount of expenditure and effort being, being undertaken is huge. Just these, these bird, the bird book that I authored has spawned a sort of a bird-watching, and just something that didn't happen. There are now more than 50 bird-watching societies, and, and there are provincial chapters of the bird society all over the country. Tens of thousands of young people going out, watching and commenting and caring about what's happening to our birds.
0: So some really positive stories coming out of China then.
1: That's really exciting, and I certainly will check out Yahoo myself. Thank you so
0: much, John, for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. Our next guest is one of our own, ZSL scientist and senior research fellow, Dr. Samuel Turvey. Sam has worked in China for the past 20 years, ever since studying for a doctorate in Chinese paleontology. He studies extinction patterns in the past to inform conservation management for the future, mostly focusing on critically endangered species. Heidi, Sam is one of your PhD supervisors, so I think you should take the lead on this one. Sam, I remember when I first started
1: my job two years ago, you said you would encourage everyone studying the environment to go to China at least once and especially to go see the Yangtze River. Now, what exactly did you mean by this?
3: That's a good question. I think for me, I've spent a lot of time there, a lot of my career and research there, but really, I'd say more widely, China is like the future of conservation in many ways. That a lot of the challenges that people have to face to try and protect the environment in China today are likely to be challenges which other parts of the world will come to face in the future. So it would be really good for as many conservationists as possible working in different contexts around the world to kind of get an experience for what the future might hold for them.
1: Now historically what are the UK's contributions to the natural science and conservation in China and is the UK's legacy in these fields still playing a role today in conservation?
3: So China's a very interesting country internationally for all kinds of reasons, but partly because of its historical relationships to other parts of the world. But obviously here in the West, we have strong colonial heritage in places like um, Southern Asia and the UK and other Western environmental presence has been able to sort of start interacting with China at all. And that's part of the issue about trying to develop effective conservation in China because the country has been, until recently historically, quite closed off. That trying to sort of develop conservation thinking from a very different starting point is is one of the major challenges.
0: Sadly, in 2007, Sam, the Yangtze River Dolphin, also known as the Baiji, an endemic Chinese freshwater cetacean, was declared extinct. What led to its demise?
3: So again, this is related to the fact that the Yangtze region has got such a large human population density and the associated interactions and and requirements that those people have with the environment. So the Yangtze is is this vast freshwater drainage, which many, many, many millions and millions of people are dependent on. And so there's huge problems in fishing, legal, illegal, overfishing, there's heavy amounts of boat traffic, there's lots of pollution, industrial, agricultural, domestic pollution there's huge amounts of habitat modification so the natural freshwater system has been has been warped and weaved and twisted into something which is not what it used to be evolutionarily so all of these pressures led to the decline of the yangtze the ecosystem that the dolphin needed to support itself and the decline of its fish base its prey base but also large amounts of accidental killing of dolphins no one was deliberately targeting them but dolphins get tangled in fishing gear would get polluted would get hit by ship propellers and this just insurmountable level of mortality and loss of resources is really what pushed the species over the edge.
0: We're talking a lot about collaboration in conservation today. Did a lack of collaboration lead to this result?
3: I think so. I mean, looking back, there were various different historical attempts at collaboration, American and other Western participants came to China to meet with Chinese stakeholders and try to suggest ways to try and conserve the Yangtze dolphin before it became extinct. but there were lots of sort of differences of cultural opinion and perception, which led to kind of cultural clashes. Conservation meant something different, depending on who you asked. In China, there's historically been a much stronger focus on captive breeding and taking animals out of the wild context. Whereas in the West, there's been an increasing recognition of the need to conserve species within a functioning, healthy ecosystem. And these sort of mis- misperceptions or different starting points are what led to collaborations not really coming together in time.
0: So with this experience how do you think collaboration efforts can be improved to help conserve other critically endangered species in China?
3: So I think just realising the need that need for collaboration in conservation in China and the fact that different stakeholders are coming from different perspectives different starting points conservation I mean even in the west conservation means many different things to different people and so realizing that what we think of as, as a, a, the correct conservation strategy might be totally different to what automatically is thought of by people in other parts of the world so trying to maintain a, or develop a common language in conservation I think is really important
0: that's really interesting Sam thanks for joining us thanks very much Sam We're now joined by Yifu Wang from the University of Cambridge, who is studying the relationship between pangolin conservation and the demand for this species in traditional Chinese medicine, also known as TCM. Yifu's research highlights the importance of understanding the social, cultural and economic influences on wildlife consumption and trade. Although there's an increasing awareness of this issue, Yifu, there is still a lack of understanding amongst conservationists about the motivations and drivers for why pangolin-derived medicines are prescribed by doctors and how much consumers really understand about the issue. What do you think is the solution to reducing the demand in pangolin scales in China?
4: So... I think firstly, we have to cooperate with TCM communities and government to legally ban pangolin-scale use in TCM, i.e. the traditional Chinese medicine, because firstly, the demand is really huge and there is no sustainable supply towards the market. And of course, together with the legislation, we do need law enforcement to ensure that uh, the legislation is taking place and effective. And we also should emphasise on the illegal aspect of the market during the public campaigns
0: to educate the public which aspect of the market is legal at now. So there are quite a few different things that need to be in in place, ideally. Are you optimistic about change and, and progress? I think I
4: would say I am optimistic because I think we have enough evidence to persuade the TCM communities and the government to change their behavior and the policies. And also we have successful previous examples of banning rhino horns uh, from the TCM practice. So I do think it's possible. And also the government is emphasizing on the conservation and environmental protection more in recent years. For example, like the concept of ecological civilization being proposed in the 19th National Congress last year. So overall, I'm quite optimistic about the change.
1: Yifu, you were born and grew up in China, where conservation and environmental protection is an emerging but growing area of work. What is your experience of conducting conservation research in China
4: like? So this is actually my first research in China, so I wouldn't say myself as experienced. But while I was doing my research, I feel the environment is overall quite supportive towards conservation research. So I get a lot of help from local NGOs, and I also get a lot of help from the local authorities, i.e. the local forestry bureaus and the nature reserves, which without their help, my project wouldn't be feasible. And I also notice that the conservation awareness is rising up in the younger generations.
1: That's really encouraging to hear your positive experience. But what do you think are the key challenges facing conservation in China, especially from a student or early career researcher's perspective like yourself?
4: So I feel the social science aspect studies is underrepresented in general in conservation biology, especially in China, because China is such a big country, both geographically and also on the population-wise. So it's very hard to get a representative result that could say straightforward like x percentage of Chinese people think that way but social science is also very important for conservation because in my opinion conservation is all about human We want to change people's behavior what they think and what they do so we can't just not do it because it's difficult so I think we do need more social aspect studies in China for more effective conservation. In the meantime, it can also be
1: pretty hard working in conservation, um, per- in particular in China. So do you have any advice to offer the students per- pursuing a career in conservation like yourself?
4: I would definitely encourage them to pursue a career in conservation. And as you said before, conservation and environmental protection is emerging and growing in China. So there will definitely be more and better opportunities in future.
0: Thank you so much, Yifu. Thank you very much, Yufu, and good luck on your PhD. To finish, we're joined by Dr. Philip Reardon, who is the Head of Conservation Biology at Marwell Wildlife and also a Senior Research Fellow at Beijing Forestry University. Philip has worked on snow leopard conservation and research since 2007. These beautiful and charismatic animals are found in the snowy plateaus of China, a very different environment to the ones inhabited by giant pandas, gibbons and dolphins. In fact, the Tibetan Plateau, one of the strongholds of the snow leopard, is often seen as the Wild West of China. Philip, how would you describe this unique region that is quite mysterious to those of us who have not experienced it before?
5: It's extraordinary. Obviously, the mountains, the scenery. um, We're looking at some of the highest peaks in the world edging around China. And the the people and communities that live there have existed in this environment for centuries and have adopted a way of life which is like nowhere else on the planet. I've been lucky enough to travel to many places, but I think the mountains of China I've got to feature as probably my favorite place.
1: So transboundary is one of the characteristics of the snow leopard. Now, what challenges do you face in conserving a species like snow leopard that is both highly enigmatic, but also roams across the boundaries of 12 countries?
5: The, the challenges are depressingly simple. It's about language, it's about culture, and it's about mutual understanding between people. And I consider myself incredibly fortunate that almost all of the people I've ever met, particularly within conservation, have been fantastic, dedicated people with the best intentions of protecting the planet that they live with. And the same is true working between boundary areas of China, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, where I'm currently focused. And there were sort of the challenges of just how to share information, how to develop a regional strategy for monitoring, for surveying, which can then be compared across the boundaries so we can start to develop what my um, Kazakh team referred to as a passport for each snow leopard. So each individual we can have it, has its own passport and we can then check it as it makes its progress across those border areas. And so bringing people together, in my experience, has always been very much a sort of a process of developing trust, developing those relationships, and that can happen in the most informal circumstances. It's not about necessarily the sort of, you know, the high-level meetings. It's not about the sort of, you know, the academic symposia. To be honest, it's often just about sharing a beer in the evenings and just talking about life at home, because those are the common experiences that unite us all.
0: And so those shared understandings and collaboration are really key to successful conservation? Are vital.
5: I think without it, then we tend not to get very far. I think we work with people we like and we respect people we like. And I think getting that sort of more personal understanding between people is often helpful in cementing those bonds that then sort of enable us to work together. And also just for people in China, but also in some of the other countries who may not have much access to or experience of people from other countries themselves. And so just understanding that we're not that different is a major step for a lot of people. And that, that, you know, that someone from Kazakhstan can share a joke with somebody from China and understand it is it sounds laughably simple, but it's actually fundamental to what we do
0: many conservation researchers and practitioners are advocating for more optimism rather than pessimism in conservation with this in mind what makes you optimistic about conservation in china
5: i think the the optimism comes from the people i work with because there is an unequivocal desire to protect what they have and to improve on the environments <laughs> that they have responsibility for in china and that goes from the very top in working with government, working with State Forestry Administration, down to the communities and villages that we work with in the mountains. I don't think I've ever come across, or I've come across very seldomly, people who have a you know, you know, deep-seated self-interest, or sort of obstacles. By far and away, you know, the majority of people I interact with actually see the positive benefits of doing what they do, but also they see the intrinsic value, you know, to put it in those terms, Uh, of the world around them and I'm always heartened when I go and visit and work with communities in some of these remote areas, just how passionate they actually are about the world that they live in and that they are tasked with protecting and the more help we can give to those people the better.
0: Thank you Phil. Heidi, there are a lot of challenges ahead for the conservation of wildlife in China. What do you think is the key to success? That's a really good question.
1: I think interdisciplinary research is probably key to understanding the complex systems that really characterize the place where many environmental issues are embedded in, especially today. Um, And also in conservation science, there's been an increasing focus on combining methods in traditional ecology, biology, and also the social sciences to answer our questions, and then ultimately applying these scientific findings to achieve conservation goals on the ground. I think working at an international organization and also having projects halfway across the globe, especially in ones like China, um, which has a very different culture and speaks a different language from what we do here, through working in this way, I've really realized that with globalization nowadays, really nothing and nobody exists in isolation. And part of it is certainly really challenging, but also in many ways, it's an advantage, we can see it that way, that we have in today's really shrinking world, which is is being able to work collaboratively across the world to really deal with some of these pretty tricky issues, such as wildlife conservation. And also what I found is teaming up really helps because all individuals and organizations have different strengths and weaknesses, so collaborating is just a great way to maximize the returns with limited resources, so to speak. And beyond our usual networks of academics, nonprofits, and government in the conservation sector, we have been trying to engage other people who are also really keen on making a difference in conservation. And this ranges from journalists, photographers, to companies in the private sector, and even to art school students, um, for example, who want to help make projects with a conservation message and so many other members of society. And finally, I think the most rewarding part of my job, in addition to studying some of the most relevant questions about the environment and especially our place as human beings in it, is really getting to meet and work with so many really highly dedicated individuals who share the same passions. And because of this, I think we have every reason to be hopeful and to deal with all the challenges ahead.
0: Well, you and our other contributors have given me hope today. Thank you, Heidi, and good luck with all your studies and involvement in China. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. Look out for the next edition of the ZSL World Science Podcast, by which time Moni will hopefully have returned from her travels.
3: Goodbye.